Welcome to the Agora. My name is Nick Malkutis and I'll be guiding you through the latest episode in our podcast series. For those who are not familiar with the format, it goes a little like this. With the help of our own team and invited experts, we delve into a topic that is relevant in one way or another to Greece. This week, we'll be taking a closer look at migration. Since 2015, Greece has been in the front line of this issue, at least as far as it concerns Europe. The arrival of refugees fleeing the wars in Syria and other places, as well as economic migrants from other parts of the world, has put pressure on a country with limited financial and administrative resources. Although in 2015 most asylum seekers moved on to other European countries, Since then, tens of thousands of people have found themselves stuck here. Some countries in the EU refuse to accept refugees from Greece, while others do so in only limited numbers. This has created a challenge for successive Greek governments as they try to provide for the migrants who remain and drum up more European solidarity. This has resulted in Greece sometimes being praised for its efforts and at other times being castigated for the dire conditions for migrants, particularly on the Aegean islands. On this show, we'll take a look at the latest developments, including a contentious decision to remove several thousand refugees from their current accommodation. Later, I'll be joined by Daniel Howden, the Managing Director of Lighthouse Reports, which helps newsrooms investigate issues relating to migration. But first, we're going to start with a visit to a shelter for unaccompanied minors in Athens. Our producer, Phoebe Fronista, visited the facility and is going to walk us through what she saw and heard there. The Inouye Shelter for Unaccompanied Minors is run by the NGO European Expression and it just opened this January. It's located in an old hotel near Platia Merikis, that's America Square, a very old and once very classy Athenian neighborhood that has gotten shabbier but also far more diverse in recent years. And Vasilis Liritsis is the coordinator. He's in charge of 39 boys between the ages of 12 and 18, mostly from Afghanistan and Pakistan. And Vasilis has a dream, a rather modest-sounding dream of peaceful integration into Greek society. But this dream can seem insurmountable in the wake of these five long years since thousands of migrants and refugees started landing on Greek shores. Maybe I'm crazy. I don't, for example, in Leonas, eh? have you any, any idea of Leonas? I mean, the area here, the, the, the abandoned factories. Okay, why you don't renovate this? All of this money coming from from you, and explore the the skills of of the refugees. I'm sure that you can find someone to bake, someone to cook, 
you can make a, an, an area there and you can say that, okay, here in Athens you have an ethnic neighborhood with, uh, you know, Arabic food, Arabic, you know, and you can use the, 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 the population living in Leonas. They can have their own business. It's a win-win situation. They can earn money. Okay, in the first place you have to support them. But after that, after five, six, six years, they will produce. So they will, they will support the, the security, the insurance system, ICA, for example. Because all the, the majority of them are young people. Instead of, I don't know, renting uh, workers from the Balkans, like in Northern Greece, that's happening. Why we don't use uh, refuse for that? I mean, the money coming from Euro is tremendous. It's like, okay, spend it in a creative way, I don't know. The goal of the shelter is to teach social and marketable skills to the boys most of whom have horror stories to tell from their travels and stays in detention centers, although you wouldn't know it from the way they joke around with the cook, Dimitra, and each other during lunch. The boys learn Greek, some basic geography, and various skills that could help them find jobs when they turn 18 and have to leave the shelter, and perhaps the country if their asylum request is denied. But teaching these things sometimes means starting from zero. They don't have the proper psychosocial support. Uh, they are not well educated. Uh, actually, the, uh, according to, to what uh, the kids tell, tell to me, it's that they, they, they are, the majority of them, are afraid to, to get out of them of their container during the night because uh, they, 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 they fear that they will be stabbed, for example, or will be raped. So we have to actually start from the beginning to, 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 uh, to implement, uh, implement procedures like uh, they've never been taught before, the kids, I mean. It's like they have to learn how to clean their room, to learn to go for lunch at specific times, not the whenever they like, for example. And they need this uh, to be to follow the rules because all the kids experience experiencing all the trauma of the war, of losing uh, relatives, friends, and uh, they need a context. They need rules. And you said some of them had never even held a pencil. Yes, exactly. Uh, we have kids that yes, they don't know how to write, how to read. It's like they see a pencil for the first time in their life. They have no experience regarding education, regarding, I don't know, uh, going out and um, using uh, the train or the buses. Uh, or even, even they, don't have, they don't know exactly where they're coming. The first question that I asked, the first question, do you know where, now where are you, where you are? Um, I'm not sure. Is, is it a camp? So that's the way I'm telling you. We have to explain even that, that you're coming in a shelter, not in a camp, not in a detention center, not in a, I don't know. We don't know it. There are drawings and paintings taped up against the walls. There's two TVs and a broken foosball table. 
and Vasilis and the team do their best to create a safe space for these children to develop and to have a future. But he is concerned about the lack of foresight that successive Greek governments have had in dealing with the migration issue. Uh, working with uh, minors and working with a vulnerable population is to have a plan and to follow as much as you can, okay? It's to follow the plan and actually to respond to their needs. And even if you cannot respond to that, they have to know. You want to take them out from the shelter or the hotel. What, what is the plan? How will you respond when 10,000 people will live where? In the street? In the square? Where? So it's, it's exactly the same. You have to have a plan. That was Phoebe Fronista reporting from the Noi Shelter for Unaccompanied Minors in Athens, run by the NGO European Expression. After that insight into the work that goes on there, let's take a look at the latest developments in Greece regarding the migration issue. I'm joined now by our features writer at Macropolis, Georgia Naku. Before we start, I want to play a brief clip from a recent demonstration in Malakasa, north of Athens, where locals protested against the reception centre located in the area. So, Georgia, thanks for joining us again on the Agora podcast. Good to be here again. We heard uh, just now a clip that, of a recent protest in Malakasa, an area nor- north of Athens, uh, where residents were tear gas as they protested against the local facility housing migrants. Can you uh, explain to us exactly what's going on there and what kind of challenges the Greek government is facing as it tries to uh, create more uh, facilities for uh, asylum seekers, migrants on the mainland away from the islands, which had obviously been at the centre of this issue. So um, just to set the scene a bit, there are about 30,000 migrants and refugees on the islands of the East Aegean, which is where they tend to arrive by sea from Turkey. Um, Those camps are very overcrowded by anyone's account. They're obviously unpleasant for the inhabitants of the camps, but also for the surrounding population. Um, And sort of rewinding a bit before the... um, the coronavirus um, crisis, um, the government was under intense pressure to start relocating uh, migrants and refugees from the islands to either um, deport them if they were ineligible for asylum or to relocate them across the country. And they made a commitment back then that they were going to move 10,000 individuals from the islands to the mainland by the end of the year, uh, and that they would do it in an equitable way. So they would ensure that any 
relocated migrants and refugees would make up no more than 1% of the local population in any administrative district. So already back in February, March, this was causing enormous tension within the islands because some of the camps were being moved just across the island. And there were similar scenes to the ones at Malacasa um, where the government sent in the riot police to deal with local protests. So Malacasa is sort of the same sort of scene being transferred to the mainland. As you said, Malacasa is a few miles north of Athens. It's actually a small village um, that used to be surrounded by army camps, and those army camps are now being converted to migrant reception facilities. Um, there was already one there um, that's been there for the last couple of years, and that already housed just under 2,000 people. Um, and because of the pressure created by the pandemic to redistribute people, a second temporary facility was set, set up next to it um, that sort of overnight got turned into a permanent facility. And this um, understandably upset the locals. And um, the result was what we saw last weekend, which was a protest organised. Um, they tried to block one of the main road arteries north out of Athens uh, and the, the riot police responded with tear gas. Now, as you mentioned, the Greek government is in this kind of logistics game uh, with tens of thousands of, of, of people in Greece, either economic migrants or uh, asylum seekers, and finding a way to uh, move them around, uh, put them in either uh, apartments or other or former hotels, as you mentioned, former military camps and obviously this process as you described is meeting with resistance from local communities which is uh, one of the key challenges faced by the government. Now one of the policies that has come up in the last few days and which seems to be meeting with criticisms, criticism from NGOs is this move to remove asylum seekers from these uh, apartments which are provided for by the uh, UNHCR and uh, former hotels and so on, which obviously is designed to create space to move other people into them and away from the islands and, and perhaps other areas where the government feels maybe it's a bit more uh, sensitive to, to house uh, migrants. Can you explain this process a bit more to us? Um, yes, the... People that this applies to are a mixture of recognised refugees. So these are people that have um, applied for asylum and had their application accepted. So these are people that are um, now legally resident in Greece and people who still have their applications um, in the course of being processed. So uh, at the moment they're being housed in subsidised accommodation that's funded by the EU and administered by the UNHCR um, under a programme called Estia. And up until recently, um, the way it worked was that um, they had six months after having their asylum applications accepted, they had six months to find alternative accommodation 
and um, wean themselves of the uh, the benefits that they were receiving. Um, in March, the law changed, and that six month grace period was cut down to thirty days. So suddenly, they're sort of faced with a cliff edge, where they're being evicted from the subsidised accommodation, and they have to find both new accommodation and the means to support themselves. Uh, and this is uh, creating upset, uh, not just for the people directly concerned, but also for um, the local communities, and particularly um, in Athens, where a large number of apartments were being used for this purpose. Um, the, the mayor of Athens is very concerned that this is going to lead to uh, a spike in homelessness and um, sort of um, problems within the community. So, and I, I guess this is also the, the general direction of the criticism coming from the NGOs as well, is that if you remove these people uh, before they have a way to support themselves, you're going to create a different type of uh, social problem. Yes, absolutely. Um, and one of the problems here is that um, a lot of the solutions developed to, to uh, housing and um, managing the sort of numbers of uh, numbers of asylum seekers was really done under emergency conditions and didn't really progress any further. So um, there was emergency funding to support the housing and to to pay them a living allowance, but there wasn't much effort put into integration. So a lot of these people, the NGOs point, point out. Um, don't speak good enough Greek to find um, gainful employment in Greece. And there's been very little effort made to um, form links with the community to allow them to transition out of, you know, supported accommodation into independent living. And Yuria, there was a report a few days ago in the Kathmerini newspaper which cited an uh, internal document from an international organization that deals with migration issues. We don't know which one. It was purposely not uh, mentioned in the report to to presumably protect the source of the leak. But that internal document was quite critical of the way Greece has been handling not just this aspect of uh, the migration issue, but the, the, the matter as a whole. Can you walk us through what what this internal anonymous at this stage report uh, was? Uh, what was it the main uh, thrust of its argument? Um, yes, as you say, the organisation hasn't been named, but it's fairly clear from the context that it's uh, a big player that is um, directly involved in uh, managing migration policy in Greece. And it, it really is um, scathing about just about every aspect of the way migration policy has been handled. You know, the headline claims are that the migration funds that the EU has provided to Greece are being squandered either through just poor planning or through um, financial irregularities. It also criticises the government for for creating a policy that's based on on really sort of unrealistic expectations, setting targets that are unlikely to be reached. You know, in terms of 
the the way that the funds are misused, it focuses particularly on Malacasa and on this second new centre that's being built and how that's been costed and how the contract's been awarded. And the, 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 um, the leaked report says that the government is spending something like, well, it's more than 10 times what comparable projects cost per head, per beneficiary to build. You know, the, the, the costs are potentially being inflated Right. The, the contracts are being awarded without a proper tender, and um, the other the other aspect of that is that um, there's been very little consultation, and that um, the report hints that local communities are being kept in the dark deliberately to avoid confrontation. Right, uh, and of course, the, the Greek government's response to that is to de- deny a lot of these. Accusations and to say that they're they're, they're not uh, representative of what's going on, but I guess that if if we look at it uh, over a sort of a broader period, that the real concern here is firstly that a lot of these criticisms of Greece's handling of the issue have been consistent for a number of years, not just uh, during the lifetime, the brief lifetime of this government, but also that the persistence of these kinds of uh, criticisms makes it that much more difficult for Greek authorities to then turn towards uh, Greece's EU peers and say, look, we need more uh, solidarity, because then there is a very easy and ready answer there to say, well, look, you're not really uh, using the the solidarity we're offering, albeit financial solidarity, rather in terms of... um, sharing the burden in terms of the number of uh, refugees that each country is taking on. Uh, you, you know, we're providing this financial solidarity and you're not using that very well at all. I mean, as you correctly say, this isn't a new issue that's cropped up with the current government. Um, under the previous administration, um, Greece was put under investigation by the EU's um, anti-fraud agency, OLAF, um, for um, allegations that the funds that were provided for, um, particularly for um, catering programs for refugees in in reception camps, were being skimmed by the Department of Defence, who was um, responsible for administering them. And as far as I know, that investigation hasn't concluded yet. But it's, you know, it's not a, this is not a, a new thing. Finally, Yulia, if if we can just wrap up on this point. Obviously, over the last couple of months, we've all had our eye on uh, the coronavirus, and that's been the centre of attention, but also because of the various um, obstacles that it's thrown up. We've actually seen the number of uh, migrant arrivals in Greece fall, something that Obviously, as far as the Greek authorities are concerned, with uh, COVID-19 apparently on the retreat, their fear is that we will now see a rise in those numbers. And typically over previous years, the summertime, it has always been a very busy period, particularly for uh, crossings uh, in in dinghies and so on across the Aegean from the the Turkish uh, coastline. What are the most recent uh, figures uh, showing us? Yeah, I mean, numbers have, have clearly fallen, um, and particularly during the um, the lockdown period. 
um, just looking here at the UNHCR's reporting, um, there are less than 10,000 new arrivals since the beginning of 2020, and that's less than a, a single month in the previous year. Um, and the, the government very proudly announced today that um, May arrivals are down by 90% compared to May last year. Um, huge drop. Huge drop, yes. But, I mean, clearly there's many factors behind that. Uh, and there's no reason to assume that that will continue. And, you know, added to yep. the whole impact of, you know, the lockdown on or off, um, there's clearly the concern that um, from the Turkish side there'll be renewed efforts to push refugees towards taking the, the boats to Greece. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any reason for complacency there. No, absolutely. And as I mentioned, you know, typically the, the summer, because the, the waters in the Aegean are calmer, the sea is yeah. calmer, uh, we tend to see a, a rise in arrivals. And obviously, as a result of what happened earlier this year on the Evros border between Greece and uh, Turkey, there is already uh, the friction there and the fear that uh, Turkey will try to manipulate, to use the flow of uh migrants to exercise pressure to leverage its position and so on and so forth so it's certainly something that uh, a situation that needs to be followed uh, closely in the weeks ahead yeah thank you very much for explaining all that for us always a pleasure okay we're going to take a short break now and we'll be back in part two with uh, an expert on the migration issue daniel howden to discuss various aspects of the issue, both within the Greek context and the broader uh, worldwide uh, context as well. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to the Agora Podcast by Macropolis. You can find us on Acast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts for the time being. We'll soon be available in more places. In the meantime, please do subscribe, rate us, and send us your comments. You can also visit our website, www.macropolis.gr, for more information about our work. That's Macropolis with a C. Now, back to the show. Welcome back for the second half of the show, and I'd like to welcome Daniel Howden, who's going to join us to discuss the migration issue. Dan is the Managing Director of Lighthouse Reports, which builds newsrooms around complex topics like migration. He's also an expert on the issue. He's won awards for his work and is a visiting fellow at Oxford's Refugee Studies Centre. Dan has lived in Greece for many years, so he's aware of the developments here. But I'm hoping we'll also be able to take a broader look at what kind of migration developments we should be looking out for in the coming months. Dan, thanks very much for joining us on the Agora podcast. My pleasure. Dan, um, let, let's begin off with this. Uh, Lighthouse Reports recently put the spotlight on the Aegean island of Lesbos and how the mood there towards refugees changed. A few years ago, many of our listeners will remember 
the island's residents were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize due to the compassion they showed towards asylum seekers. But more recently, Lesbos became a sort of uh, playground for Europe's far-right extremists. What did your investigation find, and to what extent is this shift something we need to watch out for going forward? It's definitely something uh, which we all need to be uh, conscious of. And what we've seen over a period of time is resentment growing up um, inside inside a community in places like Lesbos. And we shouldn't. Lesbos always comes out ahead of the other islands and attracts the attention. But um, obviously, it's not completely detached from what's being lived on Hios or on Samos um, and other islands. Yeah. But I guess it gets picked up on just because of the sheer volume of uh, people there. Exactly. And, and Moria, um, the main camp on Lesbos, has become this kind of totem for, um, for, the, experience, for the experience of, of the last five years, especially. And what you've seen on Lesbos is a, a build-up of, of resentment. Um, neither the national government nor the local community has much that it can do about um, about the, the root causes of that resentment. Um, in the simplest terms, Greece's islands um, have been nominated to play the role of a buffer um, between flows of refugees, uh, asylum seekers, migrants um, from uh, from conflicts and from countries um, outside of, uh, to the east of Europe. Um, and this was never a role that anybody on the islands volunteered for. Um, and it's one which the Greek government really can't deliver them from. Um, the European Union is happy to see uh, those islands used to contain uh, the problem. Basically, people end up on um, on islands like Lesbos for long periods of time, um, they'll either be deported back from there to to Turkey, or they'll make it to the Greek mainland um, and either make it from there to somewhere else in Europe or into the Greek asylum system. Um, so the islanders have been have been put there in a difficult position. Um, they spent periods of time where they were angry with the Greek government um, just before uh, the March crisis. Um, there were very violent scenes, disturbing scenes, where the Greek, Greek government sent police, um, riot police to the islands, basically to enforce an expansion of the camps there. Um, that that didn't happen, um, but those clashes were, were quite shocking, and it seemed that the islanders were set on a collision course with central government. Um, but then the opening of the borders in Turkey switched the focus. Um, what we've seen on Lesbos is that if you have long-term resentments which, and building up and you can't really resolve any of those, then eventually that anger gets displaced um, to, to the most convenient and the most vulnerable targets. Um, so the, the targets for the resentment are um, NGOs, um, asylum seekers themselves, uh, and foreigners who, who are coming to work for various different agencies, which locals perceive to be part of this architecture that they never wanted. Those also happen to be two of the major um, hate figures or hate categories for the broader European far right. So NGOs that uh, work on human rights and um, migrants' rights, uh, journalists that um, write about human rights issues are very much hate figures for the, for the far right. So it, it, 
it's made Lesbos an important stage for them as well. Um, and it just was this convergence of displaced local resentment um, and a publicity-hungry European far-right that was that's always trying to find ways to use the migration issue to make itself more relevant. Um, you've got some organized um, instigators and propagandists who come from the local communities there who seek to kind of skew the picture and give an exaggerated picture of local resentment towards towards refugees. And they found willing allies in, in far-right kind of troublemakers um, from around the rest of Europe. And they then found their moment in, in the early March crisis. Um, and we had a very dystopic vision of, of local violence, uh, breakdown in the, in the rule of law, um, and Lesbos became a scary place uh, for a lot of people who have found it to be in the past a very human place to go and engage with some of these complex things and try to help people out, both um, islanders um, and asylum seekers. Um, and unfortunately, these are the kind of unintended outcomes of long-term containment strategies. Um, if, if our local communities are going to have to give over a portion of their island to to containment strategies, then in the long term, it's going to have a very toxic effect on them. Dan, in in terms of um, far right extremists coming from the outside to exploit the situation, you mentioned it being a moment, uh, and the moment you know the the the, the spark there being uh, Turkey's decision to sort of wave um, migrants through to to Greece and asylum seekers. Uh, that that moment has kind of passed for the time being, but are we likely to see that kind of situation resurface? Will there be perhaps a systematic attempt by these types of extremists to exploit the situation on Lesbos and in other parts of uh, Greece? The thing to remember about about populism and especially the way that it intersects with migration is that um, highly effective populists um, are often very good at describing and framing problems, but they don't really have any solutions to them. Um, so migration is constantly pointed out as being a huge problem by European um, Europe's, Europe's most effective populists, but they don't really have any solutions. Um, and most of the time their solution is, is higher walls, um, sharper fences, um, and more violence um, at the borders. And that uh, the best that that ever achieves is a, is a temporary lull um, in numbers. But the, the things always recur. Um, they recur in Libya when we paid off um, Gaddafi in order to shut down um, migration routes uh, through Libya. That had an effect for a period of time and then chaotically unraveled. And then we saw huge mass movements and a huge spectacle that, that reinforced all of the problems in the first place. So um, the short answer is yes, it will. These things will recur. Um, the far right narrative on, that is offering Islanders um, something that they, they can't have, which is, um, which is a change of geography. Um, the islands will always sit between. The, the European Union um, and and Turkey. Um, Turkey is on routes um, out of conflicts um, in um, to our east, which have not been resolved. Um, Afghanistan still is very much at war. Um, there are flows of people making their way west. Um, that isn't going to change. Um, so 
the islands can't escape their own geography and the populists that offer them solutions, seemingly permanent solutions, um, are not selling any, actually any realistic or workable solution to any of this. Um, since 2016, the European Union, through deals that it's made, has sent out a clear signal, which is that there's money available to people who are prepared to warehouse asylum seekers beyond the borders of Europe. Um, so you're setting a marketplace for asylum seekers, um, uh, for migrants, for refugees. You're saying the poor need to look after the poor and we will, we will give a bit of money to the, um, to the countries that are prepared to do that, either violently or otherwise. Um, and so what we're going to see is a constant um, negotiations over the price of those services. So um, with Turkey at the moment, it's under pressure for its own reasons um, after its involvement in Syria and is seeking a higher price or, um, for the services that it provides to, to Europe. Um, Greece isn't really in a very much of a position to influence that negotiation, um, but uh, every time it pretends to its own public that it can completely control this process, which it can't, then it's kind of sending greater and greater signals of vulnerability. It's kind of driving the price up. Um, and Turkey, um, to a great extent, understands how this process works. And it's worth pointing out that Turkey isn't alone in this. Egypt understands this. Um, the various different competing authorities in Libya understand this very well. Um, the question really is for for Europe at the centre of all of this. Um, why is it that we believe that a block of um, 500 million people and the collectively the richest countries in the world cannot handle um, 100,000, 200,000 asylum seekers per year, um, but we continue to pretend that it's sensible that there are 5 million refugees in, in, in Jordan um, that uh, 30 to 40 percent of the population in in Lebanon is sustainable um, as refugees or that four million people in in a country of 58 million people in Turkey um, with a far lower GDP that all of these situations are manageable but it's completely unmanageable and um, beyond uh, beyond reasonable uh, to, to expect Europe to, to manage its own proportion of these shocks yeah, the, 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 there is, of course, a paradox in all this in that, like you say, effectively, the European Union's position on this is to try and outsource the problem, the challenge, the, the, the practicalities of all this. But at the same time, there are countries within the European Union who feel that they're on the end of the outsourcing, like Greece, and especially, you know, if you go to a place like Lesbos, as you have many times, the, the people there feel this kind of resentment, frustration that they're, uh, you know, out, the, the Europe's problem is being outsourced to, to them. So it's quite a paradoxical situation. The paradox is, is particularly bitter to Lesbos. Um, and you've seen the long-term effect of that on, um, on people's attitudes. Um, I would... You've seen years worth of uh, a kind of what we what we call in the UK a beggar thy neighbour um, approach to this, which is um, yes, we we all function as part of a block, but when it comes down to um, to dealing with the politically more complex problems like um, deciding how who hosts uh, asylum seekers and where and how responsibility is taken for these issues, 
um, the countries that are further away from the frontiers of Europe have just sought to hide and to, at best, offer a little bit of money um, to Greece. So the UK treats Greece in the same way um, that the EU seeks to treat Turkey or, or Egypt or, or Libya, etc. It's just a little bit of money and contain the problem as far away from the centre as possible. So, yeah, it's a sad paradox. You mentioned earlier, you know, the, the Greek government is necessarily powerless, but certainly very limited in how it can affect this whole process. A few months ago, the Greek government passed a new asylum law, modelled to some extent on the so-called Dutch model. In other words, speed up the asylum process, deliver decisions quickly. If people are be, to, to be given sort of refugee status, give it to them quickly. If they're not, let's have a decision and... Um, Re- repatriate them. To what extent has this worked? To what extent is it an approach that could work? The Dutch approach has been um, systematically oversold. Um, the number of asylum applications that the Dutch process in comparison to the number that the process by the Greek Asylum Service um, has always made it a very unrealistic um, example. Um, it's not it's nothing new. I mean, the, the the idea that if you could just bring Dutch administration um, into the into the Greek reality, you could fix all um, all the problems in Greece. It, it's as untrue um, of the migration issue as, as it would be of the financial crisis. Um, it's just a question of um, what happens when when rather kind of stereotyped views are taken of an entire country. The Greek Asylum Service in, in many senses has, has done um, a very good job under extremely difficult circumstances now for a number of years. Um, the idea that deportations could be hugely scaled up um, or that the system could be made massively more efficient when at its core it's a case-by-case examination of the people's um, claim for protection, uh, which is a complex process. Um, none of these things are particularly realistic, but they all make for effective communication. Stop the flows, empty the islands, um, sort the economic migrants from the legitimate refugees, um, and move on. Um, it's These are very simple communication messages. Um, even as I talk to you and and, and your listeners now, the real answers to those questions are much harder um, and take a lot more time than each of those kind of simple answers. The idea of legitimate refugees and um, illegal economic migrants is very problematic and it's an extremely simple lens through which to to look at, at the complex course of people's lives. Deportations, we talk about deportations almost as though um, third countries and their needs don't exist. I mean, just stand back for a moment and consider why on earth Turkey, what on earth Turkey's incentive would be to take back um, Afghans uh, when it has uh, an, a migrant population, a refugee and migrant population of close to 4 million. Um, even Greece at its yeah. most pressured moment has never had anything like those numbers. So the incentives for third countries to who have far larger populations of refugees and migrants and are much poorer than any European Union country, are very few. So that's usually where the breakdown point comes in deportations. Um, there aren't always simple solutions to these questions. Um, 
through Lighthouse reports, we're tracking um, uh, a cohort of uh, Afghans who've been deported from different um, European countries back to Afghanistan. Um, and most often, these people are, are moving again because there were very solid reasons behind why they moved in the first place, and those reasons haven't changed. So we're essentially just moving people around the board. Um, deportations always sound like a simple solution. Um, but I would give listeners a, a pretty easy example, which is that we've been agonizing over the concentration of populations in cities for decades um, and wasted an awful lot of time thinking about how we can reverse urbanization and return people to the countryside. And it just doesn't work. And almost practically nothing of this works. I mean, we're working against huge, great big demographic forces that just don't are not reversible. Um, so... A lot of the policy in this space similarly is kind of a little bit detached from reality. Um, I, I guess, Dan, sorry if I can interrupt you, the, 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 the response from whether it's the Greek governments or other, other similar governments, I guess the response there would be, look, um, there, there are two things here. One, we have sort of people coming on, we have overcrowding in places, we have to work out some kind of system where we we know where we can put people and and do it relatively quickly, and the, the second layer, and this is obviously something that you, they wouldn't speak about so openly, but it's it's sort of in there between the lines is uh, if we're not seen to be doing something, managing it, it well or badly or whatever, but just at least trying to manage it, then we're going to give rise to the far right, to extremists, to point fingers at us and say that you know we're not caring about island communities, we're not caring about uh, how this is impacting uh, our local uh, population. I I don't dispute for a second that it's a difficult position. Um, but let's look at the reality of the situation. Immigration was not a huge issue, in, or certainly not a decisive issue in the previous elections um, in Greece. The New Democracy didn't win the elections because of um, because of a, its stance on on immigration, and actually Absolutely. it was way way down the list. Actually, yeah, exactly. Um, I can guarantee it'll be a lot higher up the list um, the next time that Greeks come to vote. Um, and the aggressive policy line that's been taken has actually had the effect of radicalizing the popula- uh, the Greek population. Um, it's now become a commonplace for respected Greek newspapers to have cartoons in them that um, that depict suitcases filled with black people, and those black people um, are all tools, and it's a toolbox, um, and these black people are tools of Erdogan, they're tools of the Turkish state. Um, so the very close identification between um, the other whether that other is an asylum seeker, an economic migrant, or a refugee, and um, the long-standing rivalry and dispute um, and provocations that happened from Turkey to Greece has been a very damaging association to make in the mind of the public. Um, And it's had the effect of um, really stoking xenophobia inside the society and radicalizing um, the population when it comes to human rights for people who they've been told are instrumental in a challenge to Greek sovereignty and territory. Um, and it's going to take possibly a generation to undo that. Um, and I can't think of a clearer way to create space for the far right than that strategy. Um, so if 
if the goal of all of this was to was to take the wind out of the the sails of uh, of a potential future far right force, I would say it's had the opposite effect. Um, and in fact, we've seen new political organisations struck up in just in the last few weeks, which would suggest that some of the far right, the best known far right figures in in Greece, see a big political opportunity in the way that the direct, the migration issue is going. Um, now. Is that all the responsibility of the Greek government? No, I don't think it is. Um, I think a huge amount of responsibility for this lies in the political opportunism um, of the government in Ankara as well and the way that they've seen this unfold. But again, who set us up for this whole process in the first place? And the answer to that is kind of fairly cowardly, short-termist thinking um, at the heart of Europe to begin with. Um, we commodified refugees. Um, and now we're shocked that having commodified them, we're in a negotiation about prices. Um, and unfortunately, when you're at the external borders of the European Union, that negotiation has uh, real consequences for the stability of your country. Um, it's not where you want to be. Dan, from your experience reporting around the world and now um, the, the years you spent in Greece uh, examining the problem closely, what kind of steps do you think uh, the European Union as a whole and European governments individually should be taking or could be taking, you know, perhaps there's uh, successful examples they could look to, to manage this challenge in a way that doesn't a stoke uh, extremism, that gets the local uh, population on side and that manages to treat people uh, you know, arriving on these shores with uh, the, the respect they deserve. If you look at the demographics of Europe more broadly, then the only answer uh, to a stable economic future for Europe is the only possible answer is migration. Um, and we can have more kind of magical thinking discussions about um, reigniting European fertility rates, but um, that's been nearly as, as successful in, as reversing urbanization. Um, it's not going to be an answer. So migration is is the structural answer to European demographics. Greece is one of the hardest uh, or one of the worst hit um, countries in terms of the demographic outlook. So, And it has for years been solving its various different problems inside the labor markets, et cetera, with migration. Um, we've seen it happen. But unfortunately, it, those kinds of constructive answers to actual needs um, are still a long way away from the public discourse. Um, so we have a public discourse which is built around kind of nationalism and identity, which is very far away from the reality of who farms Greeks' food, who um, builds the buildings, who cleans the floors, um, who who drives the economy, who puts the ball in the hoop. Um, and so it, when you come to kind of answer, well, what should it look like instead? You've got to have a little bit of space to have a kind of a conversation which isn't completely saturated in um, in, in nationalism and identity. Um, unfortunately, that space has been shrunk dramatically. Um, the long-term answer is that Europe's going to have to work out legal pathways that allows young 
um, people to come and get educated and work in Europe's wide open labor markets um, right across Europe right now and not only in Greece. If you you have an Aust- Austrian chancellor who is avowedly anti-migration, but his own labor ministry is stuffed with officials who understand that um, blocking off um, routes of economic migration into Austria is creating tremendous problems in the Austrian uh, labor market. It's making the country poorer. It's hitting Austrian pensions. Um, so our politics is working against economics in a way which most Europeans are clever enough to identify immediately when they look at the um, America, for instance. They look at the US um, and they see they see most of these issues straight away. Um, but when it's on the home front, um, unfortunately, it's, it's too tightly bound up with um, with ideas of, of nation and identity. Um, which can be really valuable um, ideas and uniting ideas. And like any other person who's chosen at times in my life to live in Greece, I'm tremendously attracted to um, and drawn to a very strong Greek identity. Um, But the one that I was drawn to was much more self-confident and open and inclusive. Um, And I'd hate to see that um, disappear at the behest of, of people who don't really have any answers as to how we're going to run a future economy um, and how we're going to maintain human rights. Um, I think everybody um, who responded uh, to the Evros crisis earlier this year um, by correctly identifying that Turkey is dangerously far down the path towards being a dictatorship, um, then you really need to think that the most self-confident response to that is um, to display the, a Europe which is based on human rights, a Europe that has international law commitments that it doesn't seek to renegotiate when they're politically inconvenient, um, and a, a Europe that has a very different um, vision um, of of how it how it meets humanitarian crisis than than an authoritarian Turkey that wants to instrumentalize the situation. That would be the confident approach. I'm not suggesting it's simple, but um, I don't see uh, I don't see any good alternatives. Dan, I want to thank you very much for your time, the insight you've given us, and I, I think on that point, uh, uh, you've really set out the direction in which this discussion is likely to head in the uh, coming months and years, and of course the, the the issues that we're going to be facing again and again um, over the last few weeks, the number of arrivals of uh, migrants to, to Greece have dropped in this. Uh, Sort of coronavirus environment, but already uh, there is concern that uh, this is likely to change and we'll be back really into the heart of this discussion in the coming weeks. And I think you've given us real good insight into um, what uh, the key issues are. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to talk to you. That was Daniel Howden from Lighthouse Reports. I'd also like to thank Yeria Nagu, who is a featured writer at Macropolis, for her input earlier. And, of course, our producer, Phoebe Fronista, who filled us in on the experiences of unaccompanied children. It's clear that although migration may be in and out of the headlines, the challenges it poses are with us every single day and will continue to test our decision-makers and society for a long time to come. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Agora. Our podcast is hosted on Acast, but can also be found on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to it on our website 
at www.macropolis.gr that's Macropolis with a C and there you can find out more about our work whichever format you do pick please do subscribe and rate us also let us know what you think of the show and what issues you'd like us to analyse in upcoming episodes we'll be back soon with another deep dive into a topic relevant to Greece in the meantime here's our theme tune from the Burgundy Grapes. Thank you.